Hello all and welcome to another episode of The Athlete's Advocate. I am your host, Ashel Tack, professional basketball player and published author of my book, The Reality Behind the Glamour of College Athletics. The Athlete's Advocate is a podcast series I started to share unique stories of athletes that are changing the game, daring to challenge the system while changing the status quo. Today, I'm joined by Team USA athlete and doctor of philosophy in kinesiology, Ford Dyke. Hi, Ford. How are you? Hi, Michelle. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for joining me today. Um, it's always exciting to have athletes on to share their journeys um, and share their experiences with our listeners. Definitely. I'm excited for the conversation. <laughs> I am too. Um, Ford is a Team USA athlete competing in the sport of handball and traveling for competition to places like Trinidad, Quebec, Argentina, Brazil and here in the States. He has won numerous championships starting at the beginning of his career in 2014. Outside of handball, Ford attended the University of North Florida, where he obtained his bachelor's and then went on to graduate school at Auburn University, getting both his master's and PhD. He's currently an assistant clinical professor in the School of Kinesiology at Auburn University. Dr. Dyke specializes in performance and exercise psychophysiology and is a subject matter expert in mindful-based performance and health optimization. To paint a picture, for those that do not know what handball is, <laughs> it's a sport in which two teams of seven players each pass a ball using their hands with the aim of throwing it into the goal of the other team. Only two periods of 30 minutes, like every other sport, whoever has the most points win. The action photos are actually pretty insane for <laughs> the ones that you sent me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty wild. It's kind of like soccer, isn't it? It is. It actually derived from soccer. So you have football and handball in like the late 1930s. They just decided to pick the ball up because they were in Germany. They were training indoors and they were slide tackling each other and they were noticing that injuries were getting pretty bad. So they just literally picked up the soccer ball and started tossing it around. And then lo and behold, it evolved into its own sport, team handball. Wow, that's <laughs> that's quite interesting. Um, now, you haven't always played handball, though. Um, and you didn't start training until after you were pursuing your master's. How did that opportunity come about? And how long did you train before you were selected to Team USA and started competing for championships? Well, it's a bit of a long story, but I'll keep it short. So in 2013, I was a graduate student, as you mentioned, at Auburn University. And the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, the USOPC, they were on a site visit to determine which facility, which university essentially would be their next residency program for the both men and women's teams. I was told by my advisor at the time that I needed to present to the committee what we can do as far as research is concerned in the performance and exercise psychophysiology lab. And you got to kind of think about this for a minute. I'm a little puppy dog and I've been told <laughs> by my boss that I have to present something to the USOPC. So my nerves were definitely pretty high, but the focus wasn't necessarily on becoming an athlete in the sport. The focus was on sharing with the USOPC what we do as far as performance and optimization is concerned and how that can be a relationship and collaboration with their units. Mm -hmm. And after the end of the presentation, the head coach of the men's team walks up to me and he says, this is a Friday afternoon, by the way. And he says, hey, you know, you should come to the tryout tomorrow morning, Saturday morning. It's a two session tryout morning and afternoon. And I said, sir, with all due respect, you know, I'm, I'm here for academics and you know I don't even know what this sport is about mm -hmm. and he just kind of looked at me for a second and he said oh don't worry I'll teach you and he just walked away <laughs> and, I, wow. and I, I literally just was standing there and I thought well that was a bit of a moment you know and I went home that afternoon and 
I'm sure like most of your listeners jumped on Google, jumped on YouTube, start checking this sport out. And lo and behold, it's not the little ball against the wall. Like most of us think in the States, it's a European sport and it has its roots and base in soccer. So it pulls on anything and everything that an American athlete does as far as running, jumping, catching, cutting, throwing, etc. Mm-hmm. And I grew up as an extreme sport athlete, so I was all about speed and agility and power and strength. And so I figured, well, I might as well go to this tryout. Like, I don't want to just present research and then disrespect the coaching staff by not, you know, going to a tryout that they suggested I attend. I attended it, and there you go. The story goes on. I made that first cut, and by 2014, I was competing at the international level. So it was uh, it was one of those moments of show where you realize that timing is everything mm-hmm. and having the courage to say yes to something that makes you feel a little uncomfortable can ultimately be a pretty incredible experience. Wow. That sounds amazing. Now, what was the experience like playing for Team USA, competing in handball and traveling the world? Well, as I just mentioned, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's a dream. I mean, just to represent USA at the international level and have red, white, and blue on your back and be a part of a program that stands for something bigger than just the sport. You know, sport is a vehicle for a lot of different modalities. And as I was growing up, I thought I was going to be a collegiate athlete, but I ultimately decided to focus on academics. And I'm thankful I did. That led me into grad school. It led me into what I do now. But I was a basketball player along with extreme sports. Basketball was really my only recreational sport. Yeah. So. The ironic thing about that is my family, we're all rather tall and we've got good size and speed, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But I was kind of a late grower. So I left high school at five foot eight, five foot nine, and I didn't grow until late college. And I topped out at six foot four in my master's program. So most people, when I tell them I played basketball, they're like, oh, yeah, what school did you go to? Well, I didn't play collegiate sports. Right. But I think that really allowed me to have the wherewithal and, you know, the lack of miles, if you will, on my physical vessel to be able to play at the international level post-college. Most collegiate athletes that finish their career in college, you know how it goes. I mean, they've got, they've got some things they have to deal with physically, perhaps even emotionally, mentally, and maybe even spiritually. So I didn't really have that experience. So this was, for me, my you know, student athlete experience. The the weird thing is I was a grad student. So I was getting a master's degree and then a PhD while training five times a night, three times in the morning, eight sessions a week, plus film meetings. It it was, it was a lot, you know, and then you got your research, you've got your course instruction, you've got your outreach and mentorship and all these different hats were kind of floating in the air. So to answer your question, what was it like? It was a movie scene. You know, it was just one of those moments where I didn't know what I was getting myself into really, but I ultimately just said yes to the opportunity after making that first cut. And I always told myself that I would kind of figure it out on the fly. You know, I would just figure this thing out as it evolved. And I'm really thankful that I stayed with it since 2013. I'm still training now because it's taken me to close to 30 countries and just getting outside of the box that we often place ourselves in when Mm -hmm. it comes to our street or our state or even our country, when you 
get outside of those walls and those borders, you get a chance to see the world. You know, you get a chance to interface and interact with people that are from different cultures and different walks of life and different mentalities. And what they eat is different than what you're accustomed to and how they move or how they interact or what they drive or what they wear, everything and anything when it comes to cultural experiences. It was just, I mean, it it changed my life, Michelle. It, It totally flipped the script. I had no idea it was coming down the pipeline. And I can't imagine life without that opportunity because it's just done so much for me in so many different ways. Yeah. I mean, listen to your journey. It sounds like it was tough, but in the end, it sounded like it was rewarding. You know, you got, you got to travel, you got to experience different cultures, you got to play, um, you know, the game that you came to love because you didn't start off playing handball. Um, but before right. we switch <laughs> off. <laughs> I had no idea. I didn't even know how to how to spell handball to be honest you know like most americans (laughs) we don't know what handball is and it's crazy because we're so ripe for the sport but we're we're focused on the big three football basketball baseball you know so it's really interesting that there's so much to it and yet most americans are pretty clueless when it comes to the sport itself now what parts of your body did you have to work out like you know starting off in like the beginning stages what type of what types of workouts did you have to do to prepare to compete at the level that you do now? That's a great question. So growing up as a basketball player, and you know this as a hooper as well, you don't throw the ball, you shoot the ball. So everything that I was trained and conditioned to do was square up, shoulder square, hip square, feet square, elbow, wrist, everything is squared up to the hoop. And mm-hmm. of course, there's deviations with that in the sport, but primarily you're squared up, whereas handball you're opened up. So it's like a bow and arrow. So you're, I'm a right-handed player. My left arm comes in front of me to defend myself from a defender trying to stop me essentially. And Mm -hmm. you're in the air when you shoot most of the time, unless it's a set shot. So I had to figure out how to throw with high velocity and having a defender attack me. It's a full contact sport for your listeners. Check it out on YouTube. You'll probably spend two hours going down a wormhole, but it's (laughs) one of those sports that you know, it, it's it's quick, it's powerful, it's got some gnarly situations with it. We wear a mouthpiece and we wear pads like you wear in basketball, which really mm-hmm. you can't even call that pads underneath, but that's it. You know, we're not there to like fully tackle people, but it's a full contact sport. So to answer your question, you got to build up the proper muscle mass to support not only your structure, but to defend yourself against hits. and basketball you know tic-tac fouls everything's called now right in handball it's a whole another world when it comes to the physicality the speed the agility the athleticism the endurance i mean like you said we're going 30 minutes the clock doesn't stop right there are no situations where okay well let's take a break here yeah substitution is kind of like hockey you just come in come out and so it's 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 like atomic, you know, it's just so fast. And those first few years where I was still just trying to figure out where the lines were on the court, Mm -hmm. I mean, 30 (laughs) minutes would go by, I felt like, you know, 30 seconds or so. And it's just like, wow, I, I wasn't really ready for this. I always stayed in shape and took pride in my vessel, but it's different when you're competing against people that have played literally their whole life at the international level and you come in and you don't know 
you know, left from right, up from down. So you just gotta, you gotta figure it out. And most athletes, when they face adversity, they push through and they learn a lot about themselves and they grow stronger and they're better able to push themselves to a higher level. So ultimately that's what it was for me was just building up my body, my mind, learning the rules, the regulations, the tactics, the techniques. It's like chess, you know, you got to know if I make this move and that person makes this move, what should I do that? It's analytical. It's, it's crazy. I don't even know how I got into this thing. I mean, I know there's a story behind it, but it's wild. Well, you're pretty successful at it. So <laughs> thank you. I appreciate it. I mean, I say that very humbly. It's uh, when you are against people that, as I mentioned, played their whole life. And while yes, as an American, I think I'm a good athlete. I'm not a great handball player. You know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. it's very different. Like I may be more athletic than a handball player overseas, but they are way more accustomed to handball. Right. And so that's the that's the little balancing act that you got to try to play with a little bit. So mm-hmm. it's interesting. Now, it's really, really interesting. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. Now, you mentioned earlier that you were still training currently. Um, are you planning to compete in the 2021 Olympics? So in 2019, we were in Lima, Peru, both men and women's teams. We did not qualify for Tokyo 2020. I know it's now pushed to 21, mm-hmm. but we will not be in that competition. However, the men's team has qualified, recently qualified for the 2021 IHF, which is International Handball Federation mm-hmm. World Championships. And that's currently scheduled to be held January 13th through 31st, 2021. So we're currently preparing for those training camps that will be held in Norway. And then we head out to Egypt in the middle of January to compete in world championships, which is really exciting. We haven't been there as a as a team, as an organization with Team USA. We haven't been there in two decades. So it's a really big deal for us to get to that level again and to compete at that particular stage, on that particular stage. Well, that's super exciting. I wish you guys the best of luck. Thank you. I appreciate it. A quick note about handball so your listeners understand so team handball is the discipline and then you have indoor and beach so you've got separate disciplines within the primary sport itself the Mm -hmm. indoor sport is what we're referring to but there's also a beach side of it as well and i would encourage your listeners to check out beach handball i also play that too and we were scheduled for world championships this summer in italy in july but clearly that did not happen so we're waiting the revision of the scheduling but that's another right. conversation. Yeah, no, it's fascinating hearing about your handball story and journey. Um, like I said before, you know, it sounds like it was a tough process starting out, but you're excelling and doing well. So congratulations on that. Um, now shifting out, you know, shifting away from handball a little bit outside of handball. Um, you're a doctor of philosophy and kinesiology and also a subject matter expert in mindfulness, performance and health optimization. Can you give us your definition of mindfulness based performance and health optimization and what they consist of? Absolutely. So in 2013, when I was starting my doctoral program, and I was getting more and more into psychophysiology and physiology, which is essentially the mind-body, but also the body-mind connection. Mm -hmm. So how does the mind operate the body and how does the body provide feedback to essentially operate the mind? And we're measuring it at the objective level with functional magnetic resonance imaging or fMRI, electroencephalography or EEG, skin conductance, heart rate variability, HRV. So we're looking at these metrics 
at a very, very objective level, as opposed to psychology is more subjective and asking, let's say, you know, survey-based questions. That's my undergraduate experience. My graduate experience took my undergraduate experience and kind of ramped it up. And that's what it's supposed to do. And as I was ramping up, I worked with a colleague of mine at Auburn University who was teaching a course on stress reduction and it had Mm -hmm. its basis in mindfulness. And when I started learning more and more about these techniques, I realized this was something that I just did as a child and like as adolescents and as a student athlete in high school. And even when I moved into college, you know, I was aware of things and I thought and reflected and, you know, I try to push things out a little bit further to see if they transpire and, you know, I lean in and figure out, you know, how is my mind thinking today? You know, mm-hmm. trying to pay attention to the thoughts upstairs and how am I feeling physically? I didn't realize there was science behind all this. I thought this was just something that I did. And mm-hmm. once I realized there are, there's a whole field, psychophysiology that drives these kind of questions, that's really what took it to the next level for me. So from 2013 to 2014, we took the stress reduction course and pulled it outside of the classroom. And we created the platform entitled Mindfulness-Based performance and health optimization. Now that particular platform, the focus there is on, of course, performance and health optimization, but it's based in mindfulness. So as a kinesiologist, we look through the lens of respiration, hydration, nutrition, movement, and recovery, which as an example would be like sleep. Mm -hmm. And we take these pillars of health and we apply them to this platform to educate people. And it's not just athletes, it's really performers in general, humans as a whole, anyone and everyone from physicians and lawyers, all the way to military installations. We've worked in nursing homes, fifth grade, up to the collegiate level, anything and everything when it comes to performance optimization and also in relationship to your health and your well-being. We've kind of done it. We've hit that gamut. And it's been really cool because our target audiences are so various. And over the past seven years or so, we've hit about 3,000, 4,000 individuals. So the impact is rather high in comparison to something like just having someone fill out a questionnaire and asking them, you know, X, Y, Z, this is something a little different. It's a little bit more applied and it pushes it outside of, of those walls, as I mentioned. Okay. Now, you know, have you used these practices yourself and have you seen, you know, a difference in your performance in regards to handball? 100%. I use these practices. Um, I'm a firm believer in what I teach. I also practice, like they say, practice what you preach, if you will. Yeah. And it's really important to understand that what's upstairs, you know, in your mind, which is your brain in action, drives everything. You can't do anything without first having a thought, right? So even if it's something as habitual as reaching down and tying my shoe because I noticed my shoelaces were untied, there's still a thought there. It doesn't seem like it, but there's still a thought. And so bringing subconscious thoughts to conscious awareness and investigating them in a way that you lean in and have more control, ultimately, if you can control your thoughts on a higher level, you can then control your behavior, which is akin to your performance. So thoughts are basically the streamline to your performance. So if you want to increase your performance, you first have to understand 
the operations that are happening between your ears and your cortex. Right. And it's more than just handball to answer your question. I mean, when you start to apply these practices to your life, it's conversations, it's presentations, it's decisions, it's when you're going to sleep, when you're waking up, it's when you're moving, it's when you're making a decision about what type of fuel you should put into your body as far as a nutrition standpoint. There's so many aspects in the human experience that can be affected by higher order thinking. And Michelle, that's what separates us, right? I mean, we have a large frontal lobe and that's really what makes us different than most of our mammalian counterparts is we have the ability to remember things and to be creative and to reflect and to make judgments and plan and, and react or non-react. So my thing is all about let's use that to our advantage. Let's try mm -hmm. to evolve as much as possible and push ourselves to the highest possible performance without, and the importance here is without sacrificing our health and wellness. Because I think it's really easy to, well, maybe not really easy, but it's, it's relatively easy to perform at a high level and you'll sleep three hours a night and you'll eat junk food and you'll sit in a chair all day and you'll drink diuretics, coffee, alcohol, as an example. Mm -hmm. And you may perform at a high level, but is that truly sustainable? The simple answer is no, of course not. But I argue otherwise. I argue that you can perform at a high level. A matter of fact, the only way to perform at your highest level is to focus on the interdependence of health and wellness and how right. that drives your performance and how your performance drives your health and wellness. So there's that synthesis there, right? There's not a separation. Wow, that's incredible. Now, um, you said that these practices are not just for athletes, but do you commonly work with athletes? I do, yeah. Typically, elite athletes. Um, but again, I think I should make it clear to the listeners that my lens is wider than that. It's really high-profile performers. So mm -hmm. as I mentioned before, military, of course, elite athletes at the Olympic and Paralympic level. But I have experience as well with high school and, and collegiate student-athletes. And I think it's important to hit that spectrum because it's difficult to work with an athlete that's preparing for the Olympic Games or the World Championships as an example if you don't know what it's like to prepare for a state championship at the high school level. You see what I'm saying? So I try right, to right. understand both sides of that coin so I can provide the best practices and the best experience and knowledge for these performers to get to their highest level. And the interesting thing about the perspective with athletes is research suggests that one in three athletes will experience mental health issues during their career. One in three. And I believe that's underestimated. And in fact, a colleague of mine recently who is an athletic trainer at a division one institution informed me that out of a 16 athlete roster that she has this season, this semester, all 16 of them have documented mental health conditions this season. And that's, you know, that's an example of a colleague of mine and I'm an N of one, but I don't think it's an isolated incident. I think that now more than ever, we're starting to see these problems arise. 
Now, the question is, what is it? Is it the environment that they're a part of? Is it the program? Is it the coach? Is it the parents? Is it, you know, personnel within or teammates? I don't know. But the one thing I know is based off of my work and my experience is if you don't have control of your own thoughts, then you are essentially succumbing to the environment, the staff, the teammate, the parent, the fill in the blank. So the work that I do with mindfulness training is educating student-athletes on the value and importance of maintaining present moment awareness, of being in the moment, essentially. Mm -hmm. And the platform itself is, as I mentioned, evidence-based. And the idea here is that when you cultivate present moment awareness, that's when you are totally locked in, you're immersed in that experience, and you are better able to make the appropriate decision. Because between stimulus, there's always a space before the response. Always. Even as something as simple as you hear a loud crashing noise, that's the stimulus, your auditory cortex processes it, and then you have your response. Well, if you're on the court or if you're on the field and something is happening, there's a space, you have a response. So mindfulness training widens that space. It makes that space bigger. And people would say, well, you're going to have a slower response. No, 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 no. What I'm saying is time is time. Time does not speed up. Time does not slow down. We've got 1,440 minutes per day. That's what you get. You can't change that. The perception of time can be altered. And so you're utilizing mindfulness practices, the cultivation of present moment awareness, to use the time between stimulus and response the most efficiently and therefore effectively for your particular performance. So when you're in that moment, which is akin to flow state, and I'm sure majority of your listeners have heard of flow state before, what's happening is your body is being placed into parasympathetic mode activation. Right. That's that calmness, centeredness, clarity. That's where your mind has to be in order to perform at your highest level. Sympathetic mode activation is fight or flight. It's been well documented that we do not perform at a very high level in fight or flight. In fact, those systems are in our particular physiology because they're survival mechanisms for us to run away from a mountain lion or stay and fight it off. Mm -hmm. It's not advantageous though for performance at the collegiate level as an example. No, you know, the, the interesting thing is I think as athletes, we use the toughness, you know, mentality for everything. Um, right. You're told like, you know, if you're hurting to just push through and be mentally tough, you're hurting or if you're in pain or if you're emotional about not playing or not playing well you just push through and so i think when it comes to not you know being well in the mind a lot of you know our coaches or our friends or whatever just tell us hey you're tough you're resilient enough you can get through this instead of really talking to them and trying to figure out what's wrong you know what i mean and and, and helping mm -hmm. them figure that out and so 
that's why a lot of athletes, I think, also have a hard time being in the moment because we are competitive beings. You know, we want to chase goals. And so when we accomplish one goal, we're on to the next. We never pause to really reflect and understand what we just accomplished. You know what I mean? And so we start right. thinking of ourselves as more than what we are on, a, on like a, the highest of spectrums, you know, and we forget that mm-hmm. ultimately we are human beings and we experience normal emotions, you know, such as sadness or being angry, being mad. You know, those are normal things you're supposed to feel as a human being. But, you know, with athletes, we feel like we don't have the time to experience those things. And I think that's why a lot of athletes experience a lot of mental health you know, problems. You know, and they're not really addressing them in the right way. And there aren't a lot of resources. So I'm glad you touched up on this um, and you talked about this. Yeah, it's interesting, Michelle, based on your comment on emotions, there's six fundamental emotions in the human experience. You've got fear, surprise, anger, disgust, joy, and happiness. And the interesting thing there is that only a few of those are positive emotions, whereas the majority of them are negative emotions. And practices like mindfulness, which you're learning to self-regulate your physiology with your breath, with your heart rate, with your entire nervous system, essentially, because you're in control of that. You as a shell, you're in control of your nervous system. I can't control that for you. And when people say, well, you're making me angry, that's not an accurate statement. Or this person just made me so frustrated that I'm now scared and I'm living in fear. That's not an accurate statement either because you are always in control of your system. But the problem is we don't know how to control our system. No one teaches us these things. We're taught how to throw a ball, shoot a ball, catch a ball, kick a ball. Right? But we're not taught how to control our mind, our body, our heart, our respiration, our nervous system, everything that is comprised when it comes to using your body as your vehicle as an athlete. We are not, we're not, no one's teaching us that. Right. No coach that I've ever had, no trainer, no team physician, no manager, no director of ops. No one, not even a graduate assistant, is teaching you these types of things. And I really think that's, that's a problem. That's a really big problem. And now what has happened is one in three student athletes will experience a mental health issue. Again, I think it's more than that. But the biggest problem is why are we waiting for an unfavorable circumstance? Exactly. Why are we waiting until someone is, an athlete is approaching us and they have a complete meltdown and they need to redshirt because they can't control the rest of their season. I mean, that to me, that is a big, big problem. And hopefully through this experience, the pandemic, things are going to shift a little bit more, hopefully. Um, that is, you know, my vision for a lot of different programs that people go back to the drawing board and realize that these estimations are potentially low and when they're looking around at their roster and more than half of their roster has documented mental health concerns to me that's more important than running suicides or making sure that you're in the weight room in the morning Mm -hmm. so we'll see where it goes i don't know ideally you know more and more 
coaching staffs and organizations, athletic administrations recognize the need and to provide education, not to wait until we have to triage the situation. Because it's right. just not fair. It's not fair to the athlete. It's not fair to the teammate, the whole program, the institution, the sport. It's not, it's not fair to the world. So if we can recognize the value and importance of these tools and these techniques, perhaps we can lend not only a helping hand, but provide a platform for athletes to lean on and to utilize moving forward because there is life after sport as we all know exactly no yeah and uh, honestly in regards to what you just said i just have two points and the first one is i think that once we make our sport the center of our universe and our world everything that goes wrong within our sport kind of reflects back on us and we think that everything is wrong in the world you know um i personally experienced exactly yeah, I've personally experienced um, two teammates of mine commit suicide, and wow. I can't say a hundred percent that the reasons were, you know, their sport, but I can say the majority of the percentage of why they did it was in regards to the sport um, and the stress, the stressors that came oh, from wow. that. And as I've, you know, before that point, I was a type of person that experienced death, but from afar. You know what I mean? Um, you know, I had a like a an uncle that I didn't know about that that died, but because I wasn't connected like that, it didn't affect me the way it affected me when you know my teammates committed suicide, and that was a hard thing to deal with as an athlete because you're commonly seeing this nowadays. It's becoming a thing, and I don't think it should be a thing. And right. you know, I know a lot of universities can't really afford to have a sports psychologist on site to help these athletes kind of just speak their minds on whatever they're feeling. And most of the issues in regards to their mental health comes from the sport itself. You know what I mean? And, and the, all the things, whether it's injuries, whether it's like fatigue, um, being burnt out, just all the stuff that comes within the sport, you know, it's not addressed from a mental aspect and it just piles on and piles on until the athlete just breaks, you know? So I definitely think they need to evolve in that instance. I hope so. And I think when you're talking about pile on and pile on, it's not just at the collegiate level. I mean, we have to understand that as a college athlete, you didn't start yesterday. You know, you were probably training in this sport, if not your whole life, the majority of your life. And you're only between 19 and 22. And so, excuse me, 18 and 21, somewhere in that window. Mm -hmm. And so... I mean, without without the frontal lobe fully developed and without life experience under your belt and just the perspective of there's more to your life than the four walls of a gymnasium or the four corners of a field, it's tough. It's really tough to your point about trying to get them to understand that there's a bigger picture and it's okay to fail. As a matter of fact, you have to fail to learn. You just got to learn how to fail forward. Exactly. And I don't know. I don't know if it's, if it's parentally driven. I don't know if it's coming downstream from coaching staffs or managers. I don't know where it's coming from. Perhaps it's peer driven. Um, it's the sign of the times. Who knows? I mean, it, it's just the thing that we do know is that there is clear evidence that we have a lot of problems we need to address. And thankfully, as you mentioned, 
they're starting to come more and more to the surface. But I think we can do better. I think we can do a lot better. I definitely agree with that. Definitely. Wow, that was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was really cool. That was yeah. a good point. That was definitely. Now, do you provide any seminars or workshops? Yes, of course. So in conjunction with my work at Auburn University, I also am the founder and CEO of a platform. It's entitled Perfor Humans. That's P-E-R-F-O-R, human, H-U-M-A-N-C-E. And it's literally reincorporating the human element, that H-U, back into performance. Mm-hmm. Based on what I just said, I don't think these things should be separate. And it's an approach, it's an evidence-based approach to optimal performance, health, and well-being. So it's rooted in science, right? These aren't things that I'm just pulling out of the air and saying, <laughs> go sit cross-legged in the corner and burn incense and drive a hybrid and only eat leaves. Like, that's not what we're saying here. What we're saying is these tools and these techniques and these practices are rooted in empirically driven evidence, right? And we take that knowledge and we apply it to these practices. So if your listeners or anyone is interested in this particular platform, it's performhumansinfo.com. I'm sure you can throw that in your show notes. You can also just Google my first and last name for Dyke and mm-hmm. check out what I have going on at Auburn's campus. But we provide different types of services, which you can find on the website. As far as you know, one-on-one private consultation is concerned, we've got some masterclass stuff in the works. There's live virtual sessions as far as webinars, if you will. And I do a lot of seminars, invited seminars. Unfortunately, right now, you know, with social distancing, et cetera, those have been put off to the side, but fingers crossed, those will come back around hopefully sooner than later. So any and all of those services are available to people that are interested in this particular platform. Awesome. Now, how can we keep up with you? Do you have any new projects that you're working on that we should look out for? Yes, definitely. So I am not on social media other than LinkedIn. Um, we don't need to get into the reasons why, but essentially oh, I'm no, a we have to know. I stay away from <laughs> things like that. <laughs> yeah, it's a, uh, I never, well, I shall to answer the question. I've never been on social media. I've never had a social media handle on any platform. So it wasn't something for me that I felt that I needed um, mm-hmm. from a professional standpoint, though similar to how we connected just through LinkedIn, I think is a great resource for people. Again, they can find me on LinkedIn. I've got a lot of information on that site as well. But I would suggest contacting um, Perfor Humans Info. So contact at PerforHumansInfo.com and we can definitely take care of any and all questions, comments, concerns that someone has and we would welcome them as a potential client as well. Awesome. Now, you know, this has been a great, inspiring story, interesting story to listen to. Um, What is one thing you would leave with our listeners before we go? Hmm. Yeah, I think to timestamp this conversation, Michelle, today is World Kindness Day. And is it really now more than ever? It is. Yeah. Friday the 13th, which is kind of strange that it's on Friday the 13th. Right. (laughs) It's always November 13th. And, uh, My point for bringing that up is I think more than now, more than ever, right? As in now more than ever, humanity as a whole, regardless of the color of your skin, your gender, your sex, your socioeconomic status, 
whatever, right? I think we need each other. We need each other now more than ever. And we need to connect and coalesce and innovate and evolve. And so my suggestion is to be kind to one another. Partake in a random act of kindness. And the important piece there is when you partake in a random act of kindness, pay attention to how you feel. Pay attention to what happens, what transpires in your body and in your mind. Because we live on a spherical planet. This, isn't, this is not a box. It's a sphere. And what goes around comes around. And so I say all that to say, let's try to make kindness the norm. And let's try to push our existence to another level. That's really great advice, Ford. Thank you again for joining us today. This was a blast. I had so much fun um, learning about you, being on Team USA, all the things you're doing at Auburn, and then your mindfulness training. Um, you know, we wish you well and definitely will keep up with you. Thank you, Michelle. I appreciate it. All right, good people. Catch me next time on a new episode of The Athlete's Advocate with another special guest. Don't forget to follow me on social media. My Instagram handle is at Tack, and my Twitter is big underscore A23. My 